Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Most people have heard of the Detroit Auto Show. It's where automakers come and show off their wares and the next season models. It's a great place to get a sense for trends in the North American auto market. But how about automillability? Automillability? Yes, with the letter D at the end. Automobility, mobility, millability. (laughs) Automobility. What's the D stand for? I think it stands for for Detroit. Okay. So since 2017, it's been running alongside the Detroit Auto Show, and it's a hub for mobility, innovation, and tech. You're also seeing a lot of this tech innovation in the mobility space showing up also at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. And there's just so much happening in this space. So while it can take up to five years from a concept to turn into an actual car, Keeping track of the innovations actually coming out right now and how it's going to impact people and how goods move around in the future is something really to closely watch. And while we're on the topic of events, BNEF is hosting our San Francisco Summit this upcoming February. It's one of six annual summits that we host at different locations around the world. And as you might expect from an event close to Silicon Valley, there's a bit of tech focus. But as you might also expect from BNEF, there is an energy focus too. But here's the special part. We also talk about how tech and energy converge with the mobility space, making it a pretty interesting place to think about the future of transport. So in today's episode of Switched On, Mark and I are going to interview Colin McCarriker, who is the strategic lead at BNF for Advanced Transport Insight. He's going to take us through the transport team's 10 predictions for 2020 in a note titled EVs and New Mobility Trends to Watch in 2020. He'll even let you know a little bit about how his team did against their 2019 predictions. You can access Colin's 10 predictions on bnf.com, on the mobile app, or via BNEF Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. And just a quick note, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice. Our full disclaimer is at the end of the show. Hey, Colin. Hey, Mark. Thanks for coming in. Today, uh, we're going to talk about your 10 predictions for 2020. Now, all three of us in this room, me, Dana, Colin, we've all been here at BNEF for about 10 years now. And every year we've done this exercise. It started off as our company-wide 10-year predictions for everything, but back then it was really just wind and solar. And we've moved into more and more of these predictions as we've gone forward. Now, today, we brought Colin in to talk about what he sees for 2020. Colin, can you frame your 10 predictions a bit for us, like why you do it and where it came about? Yeah, for sure. I think part of the reason we do it is because most of the time, it's not what we're doing. We don't actually spend as much time on predictions as people think that we do. They often see our stuff in social media and they say, oh, BNF just all does forecasts and, and we're all talking about 2030 and 2040 and years ahead. Really, actually, what we're spending most of our time doing is building data sets, doing analysis about what's happening now, trying to help our clients navigate a changing landscape that's moving really quickly. So part of the reason to do the forecast is actually to step back from that, step back from all this stuff that is happening really fast and say, 
well, what do we think this actually means? What do we think is going on in these industries that are changing really quickly? So a big part of it is just that. Um, and it also helps shape our research agenda for the year ahead. So if we think every January, look, what do we think are the big things to watch? Then it also gives us an idea of, well, what should we be gathering new data sets on? What should we be writing research on uh, for the year ahead? So that's why we pause and, and do these 10 predictions every year. It's also fun. It's also fun to sit there and sort of prognosticate a bit and say, ah, okay, here's, what, here's, here's one to watch or here's an out there prediction. And then we track them through the year. Which is more fun, doing the predictions for the coming year or looking back on the previous year to see if you got it? Depends on how well you did. Really. Ooh, how'd you do last year? Uh, I think we did pretty well. Uh, there's a couple misses. At last year, one of the big misses is we overshot on the total number of electric vehicle sales globally because China cut subsidies. We were expecting them to do that, but they actually cut them a little deeper than we were expecting. Mm -hmm. So our number in China was overshot. But most of the other predictions that we made for last year for 2019 actually came out looking pretty good, I think. We we try and objectively score them. I don't know if, how, how, if we fully succeed at that, but I think they came out looking pretty good. So China cut their direct purchase incentives, and I want to know if they've done that because maybe air quality and emissions have dramatically improved, or is some, there's something else going on there? I think there's something else going on. I mean, of course, the reason China's pushing on all this stuff is because of air quality in cities. It's also reduced oil imports, but there's also this big industrial policy angle to it. I wouldn't say they've achieved all their goals and they're done. I would say it's more just that direct purchase subsidies get really expensive beyond the first 3 or 4% of buyers, and China crossed that threshold last year. And they had this roadmap for a while of saying, actually, we're going to phase them out by 2020. And I would say they're just hitting that point where you can't subsidize the real mass market. At some point, it has to take off on its own. So we're in this phase now where you're starting to wind down the direct purchase support in, in China and also starting to in the U.S., and there are more manufacturers moving into China. I think several of us have seen the videos of Elon Musk dancing uh, in China. At, was it a factory opening or something like that? Yes. If you haven't yeah. yet, Google it. It's, it's a good time. Um, what do we think will change about the Chinese market over the course of the next year and in the future, I guess, more broadly? Yeah, so China's in this interesting transition where it's been subsidy-driven growth for the last few years, right? It's really remarkable growth, kind of a little over a million sold the last two years. And now they're switching to this much more supply-side mechanism that forces the automakers to sell a certain percentage of all the vehicles they sell have to be electric or fuel cell, but most of them are going to be electric. So then, but each one has their own choice on how the mix they want to use. Do they want to use plug-in hybrids, pure EVs, more fuel cell vehicles, even hybrids to bring down their overall fuel economy or improve their overall fuel economy? So in China, we're sort of, it's something other countries are going to go through in the future, but you're in the middle of this transition from direct purchase support and subsidies driving growth to bigger policy mechanisms taking over and in theory pulling the market forward. China has a goal of 25% of sales being electric or fuel cell. Again, most of them are going to be electric by 2025. That's that's not that far away. We're in, we're mm. in 2020s now. And so that's kind of what one of the big things we're watching this year is can they keep those numbers growing? So we went straight into China. Was China your main prediction this year? Actually, I mean, at, at, at a high level, the biggest part of the prediction was actually saying Europe is the place to watch this oh. year. So Europe, again, is sort of taking over some of the growth that we've seen in the last few years in China. You're probably going to see electric vehicle sales here go from sort of around 500,000 last year up to eight to 900,000 in 2020, in this year, which is quite remarkable growth. And there as well, there's an interesting policy story. So because this market is still really uh, in large part driven by policy support and policy mechanisms, the Euro European Commission has a target for reducing CO2 emissions from transport. And automakers have to hit an average starting this year and in 2021 and also 2025 and 2030. 
that's getting really hard to meet. Most of them are not on track to meet it and are going to have to dramatically increase the number of plug-in vehicles they sell in the next few years, starting this year. And so that's going to lead to a big surge. And also, we think some of them have sort of been delaying their efforts to sell EVs in 2019 because they knew they get more credit for them in 2020. Because there wasn't much reason in the last three months of 2019, if you sold an EV, you don't get much benefit for it as an automaker. But starting in 2020, you do. It starts to reduce the fines that you would otherwise pay. So that's interesting, too. We think they've been sort of building up an order book. If you went in and tried to buy one in quite a few countries, there was sort of, oh, there's a three-month wait or there's a four-month wait. Uh, there's a battery supply issues, this sort of thing. Uh, the, those order books will get opened up again now, and I think you'll start to see the numbers in Europe go up pretty quickly uh, starting this year. Any markets in particular? Uh, Germany and also the UK. There's a change to the benefit-in-kind tax on company cars in the UK starting in April that's going to have a big impact on the market. So you're going to see UK numbers probably go up quite a bit. And the German automakers are getting going, finally. It's taken some time, but they're, they're now starting to launch their more competitive models. The really big one to watch is probably ID3, Volkswagen's ID3 in Germany, um, other parts of Europe as well, but particularly in Germany and the Nordics. Um, the thing is, timing will be interesting, though. They've been touting it a lot, saying 2020 is the big year. But now they're sort of saying, well, actually, volume deliveries don't start until August. You could see that get pushed back. And it may not be really until Q4 in Europe that you see the numbers really start to go. But that's kind of one of the ones we're watching, too, is a lot of these new models launching uh, in European markets to help automakers meet their CO2 targets. One of the things you had a prediction about were plug-in hybrids versus EVs yeah. versus maybe traditional hybrids. So let's talk about that a little bit in, in light of these models that are coming out. What's it going to look like? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we said this year was there's probably going to be a bit of a resurgence in sales of plug-in hybrids and, and more interest in them. And there's a couple reasons for that. One of them is what I just alluded to, that automakers are forced to improve the environmental footprint of, their, of all the cars they sell, and plug-in hybrids are treated pretty favorably by the regulations for that. So they're going to push a lot of them into the market as a way of bringing down their, their average CO2 emissions. The other thing that's kind of interesting is that ranges on plug-in hybrids are creeping upwards. So you start to get more of them that have kind of 60, 70 kilometers of usable range in electric-only mode. The Toyota RAV4 plug-in hybrid comes out next, uh, next or this year. I keep saying next year, but we're in 2020 <laughs> This year, it happens this year. About 60 kilometers range. That starts to get to a point where you can do a lot of daily commutes uh, in electric-only mode. And that's quite interesting because if you have a garage and you have a place to plug it in, mm -hmm. you probably will. You'll go, and, you'll go and do that and then... It doesn't matter that you didn't go fully electric if 80% of your kilometers went electric. The challenge, though, is the flip side of that is do people drive them in electric mode? And there's kind of mixed evidence on this. There's some data showing that, yeah, most plug-in hybrid owners are plugging them in at night and are diligently doing that and, and driving a lot in electric mode. And there's other evidence that suggests uh, in some cases you're just lugging around a heavy battery and making a very inefficient hybrid out of it. So I think what you will need to see for regulators to keep treating plug-in hybrids favorably is more evidence that they're being driven in electric mode. So I think you're going to see more automakers who are selling a lot of these trying to show that actually people are using them, tracking charging events, trying, to behave, trying behavioral incentives to get people to charge these things up at night. Dana, you're a, you're a plug-in hybrid owner. What's your I, I am a, a plug-in hybrid owner. Um, I mean, I think that you know, as compared to a hybrid, you pay a premium for a plug-in hybrid. But I think this actually segues really well to another prediction that you had, and that's regarding charging infrastructure. Wait, but so, first, do you us, plug in or not? Well, so I'm getting to that. Oh, okay, sorry. So we do not have off-street parking. Uh, we yeah. have to plug in. You don't want to. You don't want to plug in on Sunday night because I only use my car on the weekends. You don't want to plug in Sunday night 
and then let the battery lose charge until Saturday. So it's pretty much a wake up Saturday morning, huh. plug it. Takes two hours to get all the way from a charge, even if you've got a plug-in battery. So I actually am thinking next time around, full mm -hmm. electric, because I would have go. to charge less frequently and I want to be low emissions. And then if I'm going to go somewhere outside of London, just rent a rent a car that's uh, petrol or diesel. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting propositions starting to emerge around that, right? And if when we talk further out, not just predictions for this year, we sort of say, look, here's our long-term adoption trajectory and what we think happens. I think if, e and, and that depends a lot on EVs eventually becoming cheaper than internal combustion engine vehicles. That's a, a thesis that we have based on years of looking at the battery experience curve for lithium-ion batteries, and eventually we get there. You could debate the timing, but... I think you'll start to see some really interesting services and business models come in to fill those gaps for the people who are sort of saying, well, look, once a month I do this drive on the weekends. Mm -hmm. um, there's a rental, there should be rental agreements. And you start to see that in places like Norway, packages that come up that's sort of 10 days a year, that's meant to fill the gap. I think you see some more interesting things start to show up on that front too. So I do see chargers uh, showing up all over the place. And they I are. think that yeah. our, yeah, our data is supporting that. So what are we seeing in terms of charging infrastructure globally next year? Yeah, I mean, it's a story still of really remarkable growth. Um, last, in, in 2018, at the end of 2018, there were a little over 600,000 public charging points installed. That's individual connectors, not different sites, but 600,000 points. At the end of 2019, there were about 880,000. Uh, we're calling a 1.2 million at the end of 2020. So this is still growing really fast. Uh, what we're seeing right now is pretty interesting investments from the big oil and gas companies and from the big electric utilities, and also a lot of still government support in many cases. Um, it depends a lot where you are. Actually, in, in, in large parts of Europe, it's, it's really being driven by oil and gas and electric utilities and, and some pure play operators also building these. But we're expecting a pretty steady increase in the amount built. But there are still big questions around the exact optimal charging speed whether it's a really fast charger on a highway side. Is two hours fast or, or slow? Pretty slow. It's pretty slow. Yeah, okay. it's pretty slow. I mean, plug-in hybrids is a bit different than charging battery electrics. The fastest chargers right now that are out there, in theory, can support 350 kilowatt charging, which gets you sort of 80% full in around 15 minutes. There's not many cars that can support that yet, though. So there, there's sort of this race to say, okay, can the car support it? Can the charger support it? Also, can the battery support it without significant degradation? And then can the grid infrastructure surrounding the charger support it? And these things kind of inch forward. So there are, in theory, cars that can support 350 kilowatt charging. But they're very premium They're vehicles. very high end. So one of the things we flagged this year to watch is actually more automakers trying to bring that down into lower segment or less premium cars. So Hyundai and Kia announced earlier in 2019 that they were going to start bringing that in from 2021. You have to redesign the vehicle a fair bit. You have to move to an 800-volt architecture in the vehicle to support charging that high rate. There's costs associated with that, but there may be some benefits as well. So I think you'll see more automakers saying, we're going to try and bring really rapid charging down into the vehicles. But again, it doesn't mean that every charger you go to is going to support that. So the mm -hmm. charging network is still going to be fragmented, both in terms of the speeds that they operate at, the physical standards that are used. There's different ones in different parts of the world uh, that are backed by different automakers, uh, as well the the plans, the business plans and, and pricing plans that they're under are also going to be fragmented. So it's still, I think 2020 is still going to be a year where you read a lot of stories in newspapers about so-and-so who is stranded. It is getting better. It's getting a lot better. There's a huge amount being built, but I still think there's work. There's a significant amount of work to be done and a lot of, a lot of groups working hard to try and solve that right now. Okay. So let's talk about the batteries and you're talking about fast, slow, in your 10 predictions, talk about high nickel, manganese, cobalt, and how, you know, 
it was something that was this particular battery composition was something that we were thinking was far out in the future and now is suddenly upon us. What is so wonderful about these batteries and why is it such a technical leap? I will just say that I think we had a more aggressive view at BNF as to how fast they were going to hit the market than mm. many of the other kind of industry commentators did. So we'll, we'll give ourselves a pat on the back for that. But just generally, I think what you've seen is a move towards higher energy density batteries that allows you to cut material out of the battery that cuts your material cost, it also means you need less kilowatt hours to get a given amount of range. So we've been sort of moving through this family of nickel manganese cobalt batteries. So what we're seeing is that the latest generation of that is called an NMC811 battery. And yeah, as you point out, the thinking on that a few years ago was that, look, we won't really ever see this in commercial applications until well into the 2020s. I was in um, Guangzhou in China in December, and I rode in a taxi that had an NMC811 battery in it. Uh, and there are other models that are coming too. So How did you know? I had to ask my colleague who was with me, one of our analysts in the China team, at which battery chemistry it uses. And she was very on top of it and said they're using a new, a new NMC811 battery. So full credit to... She got a raise. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I think there's, there's interesting stuff on the battery chemistry. It is continuing to evolve. The main thing, the main message out of that, I think, that still surprises me is that people still aren't clocking that battery chemistry and technology is still improving. We're still in the mm -hmm. early stage of this. The amount that it's changed in the last 10 years since we first looked at this stuff till now is incredible. And scale is really what drives innovation. And the scale that we're at now, EVs are now the largest source of lithium-ion battery demand. Previously, it was our phones um, or other consumer electronics. And that really jump-started the whole thing and gave us a supply chain and all those sorts of good things. EVs are now the largest source of demand for, for batteries. And I think you're going to see that scale just keeps driving more innovation and that opens up new niches for the market which drives more scale and drive more innovation. Can we go back to China for just a minute? Actually we were just in China with with Guangzhou. Yeah. Tesla just built another gigafactory there, right? They did in, in Shanghai. Yep. And in the note it said something to the effect of Elon Musk will really make it difficult for startup EV companies in China. Is that true? Is Tesla going to compete in China or is there enough muscle there to muscle them out? I think Tesla's going to compete in China. I think um, what, you're, what you saw over the last few years is there were quite a few EV startups launched in China, a whole range of them, a lot of them backed by kind of internet or tech money. And they pulled in a lot of talent too. They hired a lot of really good people and, and some of them are legitimate contenders. Um, but Tesla is, has built that plant faster than a lot of people expected. I, I know it was faster than some of those EV startups expected. They were expecting 2020 to still be a year where they had time to kind of grow into the market a little bit more, ramp up their own production, get right. their more competitive models out. But then all of a sudden the Model 3, which is is pretty competitively priced in China, is is there. And, and I think that is really hard for them. It might not be as hard for some of the big global automakers who are also launching their EVs into the China market. But I think specifically for the Chinese EV startups, they're a, a formidable force. Having been in Tesla that's in self-driving mode that sort of didn't know whether it should stay on the road or not, I think this is a good time to then also bring up um, the self-driving space. So you've got self-driving and then you've got the advanced driver assist systems. And that was one of the things to, that we need to watch over the next year. Am I going to be having a robo-taxi picking me up anytime soon? That's uh, probably more than a million dollar question. It might be a billion or there might even be a T on that somewhere in, in the future. Just say yes because we want one. Okay. <laughs> Mark wants one day and wants I one. The answer is, is definitely yes. Okay, no, cool. The, um, no. <laughs> the prediction that we put down this time was that actually on self-driving cars in sort of passenger applications, the progress is going to be pretty incremental this year. 2020 is going to be pretty incremental. You're going to see more miles driven. You're going to see 
more data on disengagement rates. You're going to see a lot of progress in China, actually. They're pushing that forward as well as in California, where there's a lot of testing going on. But actually, on autonomy, some of the most interesting things to watch in 2020 are probably going to be more on non-passenger applications. If you think about where autonomous driving makes a lot of sense, there is this huge, obvious opportunity in driving people around. But that's also, in some ways, the hardest thing to do, right? Mm. Um, and some of the things around logistics, delivery vans, street cleaners, that sort of stuff, probably is a better near-term application for some of this. So I think you'll see more progress on that and more recognition that when we play the timeline out of where this stuff comes, that's that might be where you can monetize this stuff a little bit sooner. Then on the advanced driver assist part, that's actually going to, 2020 is going to be a big year in that. That's where we're looking at things like automatic front collision avoidance, automatic braking for that, um, lane assist. Which both, by the way, work brilliantly. I have had cars override my apparently poor driving and save me on a few occasions with both lane assist and front collision. That is an ADAS system doing exactly what it should. So I think we actually, the regulations are also pushing that direction as well. So new regulations in Europe are going to require more of those features. Um, so I think you're going to see a lot more of that rolled out. There's still a bit of a debate on whether it makes everything safer or not. There is still some room to kind mm. of misuse some of these things because it can allow you as a driver to disengage a bit. And, and this has been the thing with Tesla, Tesla Autopilot. There's this debate raging about whether it's making driving safer. Tesla claims it is. And then their sort of skeptics are saying, no, it's making, it's making it much more dangerous. I think they're both valid arguments. It depends a lot on how people, as with a lot of technology, how people choose to use it. And, and probably how you communicate what you should do with it as well. Okay. So let's say, let's say we're back to, to transporting people around. Um, we have this universe of shared mobility and, you know, that's definitely got a local element to it. So it's whether you're in a city or you're rural, but you've got what you said, the big ones are Didi, Uber, Grab, Lyft, Gojek, Ola. These companies, I think many people in the industry have been watching their IPOs, um, you know, some in some cases to limited fanfare. Uh, and now you're also looking at some you're looking at some local governments thinking about how they're going to regulate them differently. And, and the thing that initially popped into my head when I was thinking about some of the implications for these now very large fleets of drivers is are these companies to some degree too big to fail, both by the customers, the drivers, and then the companies now operating on such a global scale with these? I think they can still fail. I think <laughs> okay. there's still a lot of room. There's still a lot uh, of ways for it to go wrong. I mean, one of the things you are going to see this year and I agree, these things are these are big companies now. And, and they, I mean, we tab, we tally up the users of ride-hailing apps. It's over 1.2 billion users. Um, really remarkable growth for something that wasn't there not that long ago. If you go to a conference and ask how many people took an Uber or a Lyft in the last week, it'll be most it'll be most people. So that that's pretty remarkable growth. But I still think it can go quite wrong. So the uh, one that we're watching a lot is regulatory pushback from cities. So there's a growing body of evidence saying, look, these things are adding to congestion and we're not happy about that. So there's regulations pushing them more towards, at least if you're adding to congestion, don't also be worsening air quality. So pushing them towards EVs, making that link between shared mobility and electrification stronger. But also just open questions about how many of them should there be allowed to be and 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 what's the optimal mix of these services as well and cities taking a more activist stance. I do think though, as you point out, once you get tens of thousands of drivers and more importantly, maybe uh, millions of users, then if you go and pull it out and, and say as, as a government 
uh, and a city city regulator that they're not allowed to operate, you will pay, face some real blowback. So these groups have a have a position, have, have a good position in the market in some ways. I think the bigger risk is still, can you make money, right? When you look at the financials of some of them, the story around exactly how they're going to get to making money is, is still a bit unknown. So you've got scale, but you've got scale and you're burning through a lot of cash right now. So I think that's more the part we're watching is, is there a credible way to get to these things being financially self-sustainable? If they are, then I think they'll find a way to navigate the regulations and, and continue to, to continue to deliver their services. But if they don't, then that could be a pretty potent combination of regulatory blowback and financial problems. So you have your 10 predictions, you know, some of them might be most surprising to you or your favorite predictions. No matter what you say, I already have my favorite or most surprising prediction for 2020. It was when I saw over the break a picture of an electric Ford Mustang. So what have you got? What is your favorite prediction for 2020? I think this, I think the one that's going to catch people by surprise a little bit is how Mm -hmm. fast things are going to move in Europe. We talked about that already a bit is like this has been building up a little bit. People are quite serious at the regulatory level in pushing this. I mean, you see the European Commission making long-term commitments around net zero and and many countries following that too. And we've been talking a bit about this gap between long-term ambition and short-term targets. But I really think one of the big things that's going to surprise people is how fast it goes in, in Europe and how quickly the gap between Europe and China closes by the end of this year. So the message for a long time that we've been telling and a lot of people have been saying is like, China's blowing everybody away on this. They're way ahead on this. I think by the end of 2020, the gap between China and Europe is going to look a lot smaller. And it may even start to look like the approach in Europe may be more sustainable in the long term. Let's see. Okay. So my favorite prediction on the list was one we haven't discussed yet today. Okay. And that is that it's it's actually a complete departure from this electric vehicle space, uh, at least on a land standpoint. It has to do with marine and aviation. And that we anticipate seeing some progress, that we expect to see some real innovation in both of those areas. Could you actually elaborate a little bit on that for our listeners today and and what we might be able to see in marine aviation? Yeah, we like to try and put at least kind of one out there one each each year. And this was this was the last one on the list. And it was just sort of saying there's there's interesting things happening around the edges on, on aviation and around marine shipping, too. So if we break them down, Starting with aviation, there's all this stuff about vertical takeoff and landing and e-taxis and this sort of flying car stuff, right? There's that part of it. But there is also this growing pressure on airlines to have a story for how they are going to exist in a carbon-constrained world. And most of the short term is going to be about buying offsets to get someone to plant trees in somewhere else or uh, maybe biofuels, biojet as a way of um, offsetting some of that. But I think one of the things you'll see this year is some of the biggest players start to making make more investments in groups trying to develop hybrid aircraft and fully electric aircraft. The technology isn't really there yet for fully electric aircraft in terms of the energy density needed to re- take any a reasonable number of passengers any anything more than a really short hop. But there are a lot of short hops out there, and you can start somewhere. Um, so you see some groups starting to make announcements on that. I think you're going to see more uh, investment and more commitment there as well. And potentially hydrogen's in the running there too. Um, so I think there's going to be some interesting things around how you might decarbonize aviation. On marine, I think some of the applications are a bit nearer term. So you're already starting to see some some ferries, other near shore vessels kind of making commitments and, and already trying to electrify. And I think that's actually going to be quite interesting to watch as well. So you've seen a few big ferry operators saying we're switching vehicles, we're switching our fleets over. Um, there, the interesting thing is they can do it kind of incrementally. They can add battery packs 
add add more battery capacity as they go. Hydrogen is also still in the running there, but most of what we're seeing so far is is on the electric side. I went and saw a big ferry line in Gothenburg recently in Sweden, and there they were sort of doing it in three steps. The first step was just for sort of port maneuvers and bow thrusters and things. Then the next step that they were going to do this year was around uh, enough battery capacity to get them well out of the harbor and into the open seas. And then the third phase was going to be to actually do the crossing between Sweden and Denmark. So, and that's a heavily subsidized project, of course, and uh, th that doesn't mean it's commercially viable right away, but that actually tells you that you can kind of experiment with this stuff and, and slowly, incrementally get there. And I think that's really important for uh, marine operators who are very concerned with safety and, and will want to do things slowly and incrementally. It doesn't solve long ocean going freight, that sort of thing. We're still just talking about the stuff around uh, and near, at least with batteries and, and that sort of thing. And electricity um, is more the near shore opportunity. Ocean going vessels carrying lots of freight, you have to get a bit more radical with your designs. There's people talking about everything from nuclear reactors to uh, hydrogen for that sector, but that's, that's going to be a very difficult one to decarbonize. Colin, it is always great having you in the studio. Thank you for sharing your 10 predictions with us today. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Mark. Always good to be here. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.